Father, we pray now that you will <clears throat> open your word to us. Father, I pray that you'll enable me to teach in the power of your spirit. And Father, we pray that it will be with absolute clarity. Lord, I pray that everyone will just have clear understanding of what it is that you've done when Jesus died on the cross. Father, just come amongst us now. Send your Holy Spirit as our teacher. Lord, that we really will grow in knowledge and, and grow in grace and grow in faith. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Right, well, tonight, in fact, we come to the the last electric fence. You'll remember that what we've been dealing with is saying that there were four electric fences that separated man from God. And the ones that we've seen so far, we saw the electric fence of slavery to sin. We've seen that one gone. There was the electric fence of personal sin. We've seen that gone. There was the electric fence of the penalty of sin. We've seen that gone. And that leaves one electric fence. And that is the one that we're going to deal with tonight. And the name that I've given to it is Adam's sin, and all will become clear. Let's define the problem that we actually have here. Now, if you turn to Genesis 2, verse 16, and this is where the Lord says to Adam, look, here's the line, don't go over it. And he says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now I've told you before that from the Hebrew, the literal translation is not in the day you eat of it, you shall die. What the Lord God literally said to Adam was this, in the day you eat of it, dying, you shall die. And the problem introduced through Adam's sin was this, that his spirit inside of him died. The moment he sinned, his spirit became dead and non-functional. And therefore, he couldn't bequeath a living spirit to his descendants. And remember, everyone in the world who has ever lived is a descendant of Adam. So here is the problem. Adam's spirit died within him because he sinned and now as a result of that everyone throughout history has been born with a dead spirit and that what is needed as soon as the fall happened as soon as Adam's sin was done what was needed was the resurrection of the spirit the resurrection of each person's human spirit Let's just see this. If you go to Romans 5, and we're going to be touching on some verses that we've touched on before, but we're touching on them again in a slightly different context. In Romans 5, just to establish this, first of all, verse 12. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all men sinned. Go on to verse 15. If many died through one man's trespass, on to verse 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Now go over to 1 Corinthians 15, 
and two verses, a bit of verse 21 and a bit of verse 22. The first part of verse 21, for as by a man came death, and then down verse 22, for as in Adam all die. Now this we can see, that the Lord said to Adam, in the day you eat of it, dying you shall die. And what happened, his spirit died within him, he was cut off from God, and as a result of that, physical death happens. And the problem, the barrier, number four, of the electric fence number four, is that from Adam onwards, everyone has been born with a dead, non-functioning spirit. And therefore, physical death eventually results from that. Now, in order to put this together and to define the problem more clearly and show you how it was answered, uh, we're going to have a look at, by asking a question, what is a man anyway? All right? And we're going to look at man's composition. Uh, psychologists, they want to know, what is the truth about man? How does he work? How does he tick? You know, what, what is he all about? Well, the Bible actually tells us. And we're going to see that man is actually made up of three things. All right? And we're going to look at the body, the soul, and the spirit. And, of course, it should come as no surprise to us whatsoever that we see man as being a trinity. We are made in the image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we're going to see that man, that you and I, every human being, are made up, if you like, of three parts. Now, let's start with the body, all right? Now, the Greek word is soma. Hence, we get phrases like psychosomatic, all right? That's where we get the word from. Soma, the body. Now, what about the body? Well, as you know, I like coming up with useless bits of information, so here we go. Your body, assuming you're Mr. or Mrs. Average, your body contains sufficient water to fill a 10-gallon barrel, enough fat to make seven bars of soap, you have enough carbon in you for 9,000 lead pencils. On top of that, you, if you're Mr. Average, contain sufficient phosphorus for 2,200 match heads, you have enough iron in you for a three-inch nail, <laughs> enough lime to whitewash a hen house, plus a little magnesium and sulphur and various things on top. Put that together at today's prices, about 30 quid the lot. All right? But of course, as soon as we say that, we know that a man or a woman has got to be worth more than 30 quid, haven't they? Now then, also, what we need to understand about the body, because that's all we're dealing with at the moment, just the body, the physical frame that you have. Now, the body has life, all right? Your body has life. Do you remember in Genesis 2-7, and we're going to turn to it later, so don't turn to it now, that we saw that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And I showed you that, again, in the Hebrew, literally, it's plural, that God breathed into his nostrils the breaths of lives, all right? And one of those lives is that your body has life. Now, the penalty for sin from Adam onwards, the penalty for sin as it affects the human body is physical death, all right? So the body has life, and the result of sin, the penalty for sin, is physical death. Now then, let's move on to number two. Soul. The soul. Now the Greek word is psyche. Now, that's 
the world we use today, psychology, psychosomatic, etc., etc. Now, the soul, what is this? Well, the soul contains your will, it contains your emotion, your intellect, and your personality. In actual fact, biblically, your soul is the real you. It's not a case that you have a soul, as we're going to see later, you are a soul. The real you is your soul. So if you talk about an old lady and say she's a dear old soul, that is fully biblically correct. Alright. Now then, the soul, or you, because remember we're not talking about the body now, we're talking about the you who's inside. Your You, the soul, has existence, but not life. Alright, now this is important. You, as a soul, have existence, but you do not have life. Now, what it means that you do not have life, in that sense, is that the soul is immortal. The soul never ceases to exist. Now, if you turn to Matthew 10, and we'll see a little bit of teaching that Jesus gives about this. Remember, I'm saying that the body has life, and the punishment the result of sin is death. Now, your soul has existence, not life, and is therefore immortal. You will never cease to exist. And in Matthew 10, verse 28, look what Jesus actually says. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. You can only kill something that has life. So the body can be killed because it has life, but the soul cannot be killed. And then he goes on to say, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. It says hell in your Bible, but it should say Gehenna. All right. Now, why does it say that? Well, let's understand this word destroy. Rather fear him who can destroy the soul. So we've established the soul cannot be killed, but it can be destroyed. Now this word, alright, um, destroy, is apolumine. And it doesn't mean extinction. It doesn't mean to kill physically. When Jesus here says, who kill the body, that word is apoptano, and that means to kill physically. But when Jesus says, who, who can destroy the soul, it means ruin and loss. And it's used of perishing food. Can you see that? So the soul can perish, it can be like perishing food, but it can never actually cease to exist. It can never die. Now also, Jesus says here that God, not only can he destroy or eternally rot or perish the soul, but he can also do it to the body. And of course the reason for that is that eventually even unbelievers, after the final judgment, will get a resurrection body as well. And in fact, they will end up in the lake of fire, in an indestructible body, which can never be destroyed, it can never be killed anymore, because it's a resurrection body, but will be eternally perishing and burning in the lake of fire. Now, we shall be coming back to that in great detail in a later study. But what we've established is that the soul, the real you, does not have life. You never cease to exist. You are immortal. All right. Now, the penalty for sin in regards to the soul, the real you, is that at physical death, 
i.e. you lose your body, at physical death, the soul, the real you, is consigned to Hades until the last judgment, alright? And then, with a resurrection, indestructible body thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity. So that's body and soul. And then thirdly, spirit. Man has a spirit. And the Greek word for this is pneuma, alright? The spirit, the pneuma. And what we're going to see, and this is the main point that we need tonight, is that the human spirit that God has given is the means by which we experience God. You see, it's the means by which we experience God. Now, the human spirit is impersonal, alright? It's living, or was living, but impersonal. Now, let's actually see this. I'm establishing that the human spirit is the only means whereby we can communicate with God, receive from God, and have relationship with God. Uh, go to Matthew 16. And we're going to look at the time when Peter realises who Jesus is. And Jesus says to him, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now then, in verse 17, we read this, what Jesus said. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So there you see, flesh and blood your physical constitution cannot in any way receive from God. Go over to the Gospel of John and chapter 4. John chapter 4 and in verse 24 Jesus says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So there you have it again all approach to God must be through the Spirit, the human. I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit, the human Spirit. And to clinch it, 1 Corinthians 2, and we've already looked at this in earlier studies, but we need to look at it again now. And I'm going to start reading from verse 9. But as it is written, and Paul now quotes Psalm 64, he says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the spirit. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now then, so Paul is saying, okay, how can we conceive of what God has prepared for those who love him? Now look at this. He says, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard. Now the eye and the ear is the body. Alright? The physical body. You cannot receive from God through the body. It's out. Nor the heart of man conceived. Now the heart of man is the real you. That's the soul. And Paul's saying, this is no good. 
But he then goes on to say that it's received, it's revealed through the Spirit. But the unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of God. So can you see it? That the only approach to God, the only way we can have a two-way thing going with God, is through the agency of our human spirit. Now, the human spirit had life. Alright? It had life. Genesis 2, verse 7 breathed into him the breaths of lives. The first life was for the body, the second life was the life of the human spirit. But the penalty for Adam's sin is that, as we've seen, his human spirit died within him. He still had one, but it was dead, it didn't work anymore. And that from Adam onwards, everyone has been born with a dead unfunctioning spirit. You'll remember I've said before that when Jesus died on the cross he died twice. Do you remember when he cried out my God my God why hast thou forsaken me at that point Jesus's spirit died inside of him his human spirit died and he was cut off from God totally my God the Father my God the Spirit why hast thou forsaken me. So that was the first his first death his spirit, human spirit, died within him and he was cut off from God. That was the terror of the cross for Jesus. It wasn't the pain. It was being cut off from his father and cut off from the spirit. And then a few hours later, as a result of that, Jesus then died for the second time. He died physically. And last time, we looked at Isaiah 53 and verse 9 and when we read that verse, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. This is a psalm talking about Jesus. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And I showed you that from the Hebrew, the word death in the Hebrew is the plural. And what it literally reads is, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his deaths, because Jesus died twice. So then, what is the result of that? The result of that is that humanity, from the moment that Adam sinned onwards, every man, woman and child is born with a spirit that they have, but it doesn't work anymore, it's dead, and therefore they are totally cut off from God. Now, let's start just to sum up, because we need to learn something about the constitution of man as well. This is important. Understand this. Our constitution is this. As human beings, we have a body and we have a spirit, although our spirits are dead, alright? But we are souls, alright? I'll say that again. We have a body and we have a spirit, but we are souls. Now turn to Genesis 2 verse 7. It is important to understand this because there's some wrong teaching that's going around quite widespread in the body of Christ about this and I just want you to be clear in your minds, okay? And in Genesis 2 verse 7, again we've looked at it earlier in the course, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breaths of lives 
and man became a living being. It says being in my version, but the Hebrew word there is nephesh, and that is the word for soul. Uh, the King James gets it right. So, he breathed into his nostrils the breaths of lives, and man became a living soul. So, can you see it? We have a body, we have a spirit, but we are souls. Now, you have to understand this because the wrong teaching is this. The teaching that seems most popular today is that we have a body and that we have a soul, but we are spirits. Have you heard this? That really man is a spirit in a body. We're not a spirit in a body at all. We're souls. Angels are spirits. Demons are spirits. But they're a totally different order of creations of creation we are souls so like the old lady she's a dear old soul that is absolutely right you are the soul all right and in james 2 26 when he's talking about faith he says for as the body apart from the spirit is dead so faith without works is dead but the bit we need to understand is that he says for as the spirit as the body apart from the spirit is dead so we learn that the spirit, uh, the body apart from the spirit is then dead. And that word apart from is chorus and it means without. So as soon as a human body no longer has the spirit inside of it, the human spirit, that is when you are dead. Alright? So physical death happens when the human spirit has left the body. Now this is important because human uh, physical death is not necessarily when the medics say it is. Now, when medicine or when doctors say that someone is dead, usually they're right, okay? But there are many instances of people who have supposedly died. They're unbelievers. Supposedly they've, they've died. And they come back to life again. And they come back with stories, oh, I went to this lovely light and it was gorgeous and stuff like that. No, that's wrong. If an unbeliever dies, it's appointed for a man to die once and then comes judgment you see and that this in fact is a satanic deception these people are probably in comas or unconscious or something like that but the thing that we need to know is that when the spirit leaves the body that is when someone is dead all right now then what we're going to see in this study are two things we're going to see the holy spirit firstly replacing unbelievers spirits so they can receive the gospel message and then the second thing we're going to see the Holy Spirit doing is this if after receiving the gospel if the unbelievers then believe we're going to see the Holy Spirit uniting with their human spirits and raising their spirits from the dead and bringing them back to life in actual fact, the answer to the problem of Adam's sin and fence number four is quite simply this. Tonight, we're going to find out that this is what it means to be born again. And the number of Christians who call themselves born-again Christians, and you say, what does that actually mean? And they can't tell you. <coughs> now, we're going to see actually what it means to be born again. And of course the place we have to go to is John chapter 3 and the story of Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus. And believe me, some fascinating things emerge from this. It truly is fascinating. We'll kind of read through it a verse at a time and I'll, I'll comment. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler 
of the Jews. Now the first thing I want to bring out, it's a bit off our subject, but I think it's important, that there was that it says that there was a man of the Pharisees. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he didn't just see him as another Pharisee. Jesus saw the individual. There are no conglomerate masses to Jesus. When Nicodemus came up, Jesus didn't see oh, another Pharisee. He saw a man of the Pharisees. He saw Nicodemus, the individual. And that is how Jesus sees all of us. He doesn't see anyone, just as in a conglomerate. Now, in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, firstly, Nicodemus called Jesus Rabbi, and he did not call him Lord. Now, what we know from this is that Nicodemus is an unbeliever, okay? He's not a believer. This is a conversation. It's an evangelistic situation that Jesus is in. Now, this thing that uh, he came by night, uh, I've heard people really sort of make a lot of that, and, and the normal, you know, interpretation was that Nicodemus was ashamed to be seen talking to Jesus, and so he came up to him in the dark when no one could see him. Well, okay, maybe, but there's another possible explanation for that, and it's that Nicodemus couldn't wait anymore. He had to get to Jesus then, and it just happened to be in the middle of the night, but he couldn't wait until morning. Now, I think that is the proper interpretation, all right? And you'll see why I think that at the end of the study. Now, in what Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God be with him. Now, Nicodemus is at the same time, he's both right and wrong. Now, he's right to know that Jesus' works and miracles were from God. He was right to know that. But Nicodemus was wrong not to realise that the miracles that Jesus was performing were messianic miracles. Now, I'm going to explain this. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35. And in Isaiah chapter 35, we have a prophecy of the coming of the Lord. Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are of a fearful heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now the context of this is that now the prophecy is going to say what happens when Israel's God came with vengeance, okay? And listen, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing for joy. Now can you see that prophecy in Isaiah 35 is saying, when God comes to Israel, these are the miracles that are going to happen. And here was Jesus working them all over the place. But also, on top of that, we have the fact that Pharisaic teaching at the time of Jesus had kind of developed its own precepts around the Old Testament, you see. So they had teachings which weren't taken from the Old Testament, but they believed that the teachings were inspired by God. And the teaching they had on signs and wonders was that there were certain miracles which they designated as being messianic 
miracles. They taught seven miracles, I'm not going to go through them all, but seven miracles that only Messiah could work. Now I'll just give you three of them as a kind of example. The healing of a leper. If you look at Israel's history in the Old Testament, they had never had a leper healed. The Gentiles had, but Israel had never had a leper healed in its history. And the Pharisees taught that when lepers are healed, that is a sign that only Messiah can perform. It's a messianic miracle. And Jesus came and healed lepers. Another one was the casting out of dumb demons. Now, the Jews, when they performed exorcism and got evil spirits out of people, they had a formula that they used, and on occasions Jesus used it as well. It was okay as far as it went. And what they would need to do is that they would need to establish from the demon what its name was. And having established what its name out, they could then cast the demon out. Alright? Now, that was the formula for Jewish exorcism at the time of Jesus. And Jesus himself used that formula on certain occasions. But the problem is, if you've got someone who's got a dumb demon, you can't find out what its name is, because it won't speak to you because it's dumb. Mm. Therefore, the Jews could not cast out dumb demons. And so they said, the casting out of dumb demons is a messianic miracle. And Jesus came along, and he cast out dumb demons. A third one was people who were born blind. Israel had never in their history had a case of someone being healed who had been born blind. Now Jesus came along, at, well, and they said that is a messianic miracle. Jesus came along and he healed a man who was born blind. Now there were various miracles that Jesus worked that the Pharisees said any prophet could. I'm homing in on the messianic ones that they said only Messiah can do these. Now, when you read through the Gospels and various healings that Jesus did, say, um, a lame man, people thought, oh, this is fantastic, God is at work. But if you read the accounts in the Gospels of when Jesus healed lepers, or cast out dumb demons, or um, healed a man born blind, people reacted differently to those miracles. They said, never from the foundation of the earth has a man been healed who was born blind. And when Jesus cast out dumb demons, they said, what manner of man is this? Can you see? The point is that these were messianic miracles and Israel knew that they were messianic miracles. All right. Now then also, just go to Matthew 11. And we just need to see this. You'll remember that John the Baptist got out of line with the wrong people and ended up in the joint. And while he was in there, he obviously started to have doubts about Jesus. And he sent his disciples to find out from Jesus whether he was Messiah or whether he was just a prophet. Now, if you find verse... Verse 2, Matthew 11, verse 2. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you he who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John has sent his disciples to find out whether Jesus is the Messiah or merely a prophet. And Jesus answered them, and now Jesus quotes Isaiah 35. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor has good, have good news preached to them, and blessed is he who takes no offence at me. Now the point is this. 
Isaiah 35 was good enough for John the Baptist. John the Baptist wanted to know whether Jesus was the Christ or not, so he was having doubts. And Jesus sent John's disciples back with the message, Isaiah 35 is being fulfilled. Now, that was enough for John the Baptist. And in the light of Jesus' messianic miracles, it should also have been enough for Nicodemus. Now, can you see why he was right and wrong? He was right to know that Jesus' miracles were of God, but he was wrong to have not acknowledged and realised that Jesus' miracles were messianic and proved that he was indeed the Christ. So let's go back to John 3 then and carry on with this encounter. And in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, when you get this truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say unto you, as it has in some translations, what you've got is a figure of speech, an emphatic, all right? This was how the Jews... So when, when someone said, truly, I, truly, I, truly, truly, I say unto you, they're saying, get this good and proper. It's important, okay? And Jesus says to him, unless one... Is, sorry, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus gets straight down to it with Nicodemus. No mucking about, straight in there. And can you see immediately that Jesus is saying that body and soul is not enough? It's got to be the rebirth of the human spirit before you can see or enter the kingdom of God. Now in verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now this verse gets misunderstood, alright? Now what you've got to realise here is that the problem that Nicodemus has is not with the idea of being born again. If Nicodemus had a problem with the idea of being born again, he would have just said, well, how can you be born again? Can you enter again your mother's womb? He doesn't say that. His problem is not with the idea of being born again. His problem is with the idea of being born again when you are old. Let's read it again. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? That is Nicodemus's problem. And I want to explain why why this is, it's important. You see, Pharisaic Judaism at the time of Jesus and Nicodemus was a Pharisee, taught six ways of being born again. The Jews believed that there were six ways to be born again. Now let's have a quick look at them. The first way you could be born again was that when a Gentile became a Jew, was converted to Judaism, they said he was born again. Alright, so there's number one. Number two was that when someone was crowned king in Israel, he was said to have been born again. Alright? Now, Nicodemus did not qualify for those. Alright? Because he wasn't a Gentile, and he wasn't in the royal line, and he couldn't have been called, uh, crowned king. But he did qualify for the other four ways of being born again. And the four ways are this. Alright? The third way to be born again we've seen a gentile converted to being a jew a proselyte or crowned king in israel the third way was at your bar mitzvah at the age of 13 when a jewish boy was seen to come of age and become a full man 
at the time of Jesus, under the teachings of the Pharisees, they were said to have been born again. So, uh, old Nicodemus, that had happened to him because he'd been 13, so he'd been born again once, one out of a possible four so far. Uh, the fourth way to be born again was when you were married. They said to a Jew, they said, when you got married, you were said to have been born again. Now, Nicodemus was on the 71-strong Sanhedrin, all right? The Jews were ruled by a Sanhedrin of 71 men. Now, we know that Nicodemus was one of the Sanhedrin, because in verse 1, it says, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So we know Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, and to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. So we know that Nicodemus was married. He'd been born again on that count, as it were. Now, the fifth way you could be born again was when you were ordained as a rabbi around the age of 30. They were ordained as rabbis either at the age of 30 or at the age of 50. All right? Now, Nicodemus was a rabbi, so he had been born again on that count as well. And there was one more way that you could be born again as an Israelite. Just one more way. And it was if you were the head of a rabbinical school. Like if you were the principal of a training college for rabbis. Alright? I.e. the real chief rabbi. Now we know that Nicodemus was the head of a rabbinical school. And we know this from the fact that if you go down into verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel? Now that's the wrong translation. Where the A is, it's the definite article, it's the. And what Jesus says to him, in, you know, in the Greek um, Bible is, are you the teacher of Israel? So we know that Nicodemus was the head rabbi. He was the head of the rabbinical school over Israel at that time. So then, therefore, what we have is this. Nicodemus believed that there were six ways to be born again, all right? He didn't qualify for two of them, but he qualified for the other four, and he'd already come into the other four things. Now, the whole point is this. Nicodemus had run out of options for being born again. He'd used them all up. He had been born again the maximum possible four times. And now here is Jesus saying, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so Nicodemus says, well, look, hang on. How can a man, when he's old, enter his mother's womb. Can you see, Nicodemus's problem was not with being born again. It was the fact that there could possibly be one left for him because he was old. He'd used up all his options. Now the whole point when Jesus says to him that you must be born again, the point is that Jesus is making that true spiritual rebirth is miraculous. It is beyond the power of man. It's not a question of getting married. It's not a question of being ordained as a rabbi. It's a miraculous thing, something that only God himself can bring about. And then Jesus goes on to say to him, truly, truly, I say to you. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, get this, understand it, it's important. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus says you've got to be born of water and you've got to be born of the Spirit. Now for the Jews, to be born of water is physical birth. Because when a baby is born, it's been in water for nine months, isn't it? So that's simply what it means, physical birth. Now, 
so Jesus is saying it's not enough to just have be born physically born of water you've got to be born of the spirit as well now the Jews at the time of Jesus believed that because they were Abraham's descendants they believed they were automatically saved simply because they were the seed of Abraham they thought that they were born of water they were born as Jews that was enough to save them and in actual fact in the writings of the Pharisees it actually says that Abraham sits at the gates of Gehenna, which is a lake of fire, that Abraham sits at the, the gates of Gehenna ready to snatch out any Jew who is mistakenly sent there. So they believed that the mere fact that they were descendants of Abraham meant that they were saved. And yet we know that really they were the seed of not of Abraham, but of Satan. Because in John 8.44, Jesus said to them, You are of your father, the devil. You see, because being Abraham's descendant is no good. They were unbelievers. They didn't believe in Jesus. So what Jesus is saying here, look Nicodemus, being born of water, being born a Jew, is not enough. You must be born of water, obviously because you're alive, but you must also be born of water and of the spirit all right you need to be born again in the human spirit born again of the spirit of god but also here we have a double meaning as well in the greek and we need to bring this out because the word for spirit jesus says born of water and the spirit all right jesus in the greek you've got the word for spirit is pneuma all right but it also means breath and it also means wind. And interestingly enough, in the Hebrew, it's the same. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach, and it also means breath, or it means the wind. Now then, so let's have another way. What, do, what is another way of explaining this that Jesus said to him? Well, he says this. He says, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the wind. Now, why would Jesus say that to Nicodemus? Now then, what would any self-respecting rabbi and Pharisee think of when you mention to him water and wind? Right, if you turn with me, I'll show you. And if you go to Exodus 14. In Exodus 14, verse 21, and of course, what we're going to look at now, very briefly, is the crossing of the Red Sea. In Exodus 14... And verse 21, we read this. Now here they are standing by the Red Sea. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and the waters were divided. So when Jesus says to him that you must be born of water and the wind, immediately Nicodemus goes in his mind to this verse. He realises that Jesus is likening the new birth that he's talking about to the crossing of the Red Sea. Now what happened? At the crossing of the Red Sea, Israel was reborn as a nation. Up until then, they'd been in bondage in Egypt. Now what's the symbolism? We've been over it before. Egypt pictures the world the unconverted state, the unregenerate state. The taskmasters who beat the Jews and drove them on represents slavery to the power of sin. And Pharaoh, who was in charge of the whole lot, 
represented Satan, the god of this world. So what you've got here is the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what Jesus is doing, he's saying, look Nicodemus, you should have realised that the crossing of the Red Sea was foreshadowing what would happen when Messiah came. Israel was reborn as a nation. Now I, Messiah, am here. And now it's a question of being reborn as an individual. Now let's move on in verse 6. Jesus says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what Jesus is saying is that nothing of purely human origin is any good at all. It's got to be the result of something that God does and which is miraculous. And in verse 8 he goes on to say the wind blows where it wills. And we know he's talking about wind here and not spirits. It talks about blowing. The wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound of it but you do not know whence it comes or whither it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now I think that what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look Nicodemus, the wind cannot be controlled. You can't tie the wind down. It, it goes where it wants. It suddenly blows. And so therefore, what Jesus is saying, that is how it is with those who are born of the Spirit of God. And he's saying to him, Nicodemus, I'm talking to you about being born again, but all you're thinking about is your Pharisaic teachings about being born again. And he says, look, you cannot tie down what God is doing and limit it to your Pharisaic teachings. All right. And in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? Now we're getting now to the important bit. Because Nicodemus still can't see it. He doesn't know what on earth Jesus is talking about. But you see, of course he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. You see, he can't receive what Jesus is talking about because he's got a dead spirit, because he's a sinner. Now here is the problem. How do you tell someone with a dead spirit that they need to get a live spirit, i.e. being born again, when they can only stand what you're talking about if they had a live spirit. I'll repeat that. How do you tell someone who's got a dead spirit that they need a live spirit when they're only going to be under able to understand what you're saying if they had a live spirit? Can you see the problem? And this is the thing that we need to understand now. How is that problem overcome? Well, in verse 11, we have the answer to it. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Now, up until now, Jesus has been saying, I say to you. And suddenly, now, Jesus says, it's what we he says, uh, we speak of what we know, but you do not receive our testimony. Suddenly, it's no longer single, it's plural. Jesus is not just saying I, he is now saying I, a we. So who is this we? Well, it's this. Firstly, Jesus is witnessing to Nicodemus verbally. All right. But the other person involved, the second person of this 
us, we, our, is the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit is doing is this. He is temporarily replacing Nicodemus's human spirit. Remember, Nicodemus, because he's a sinner, his spirit is dead. What is happening now, Jesus is witnessing to him, the Holy Spirit is temporarily replacing Nicodemus's <coughs> dead spirit, acting as his spiritual antenna, so that he is able to pick up this divine transmission. Can you see that? Now then, what we're talking about here is what theologians call prevenient grace, which means, alright, that you can't even get converted unless God does it for you. Now let me just show you a few verses on this. First of all, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to start reading from verse 14. Now Paul is talking here about the Jews, but it applies to all unbelievers. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. Oh, they can't receive it, they're blind to it, because their spirits are dead. The veil lies over their minds, but when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now here, Paul is talking about the fact that unbelievers are veiled. They cannot see it because they've got a dead spirit. All right, But the Holy Spirit works in this unveiling. He enables them to see because he replaces temporarily their human spirits. So suddenly they're in a state as if their own human spirit was alive. Go over into a chapter... Um, 4 and verses 3 to 6 and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled only to those who are perishing in their case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the likeness of God and then verse 6 for it is the God who said let light shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts etc etc but here's the point we're seeing that an unbeliever because they have a dead spirit they're veiled they are incapable of seeing what the gospel is all about. They can't even start to decide for Christ because in their own strength they can never see what Christ could ever have to do with them anyway because it's received spiritually. So what happens is the Holy Spirit attaches himself, replaces their human spirit so they can receive the gospel. And then what happens is they are brought to the position where they can then make their decision for Jesus. Now, only they can decide whether they want to believe or not. But the point is, a sinner cannot even come to the point of being open to believe unless the Holy Spirit works in him first. All right. But then, so the Holy Spirit has attached himself to Nicodemus, and is acting as a live human spirit. So Nicodemus is now receiving this spiritually from God. What happens next is that if that unbeliever who's been worked on by the Holy Spirit, if they then believe on Jesus, what happens is this. The Holy Spirit then unites with their human spirit and raises it back to life. They are then born again 
And because their human spirit is now functional, they are in relationship to God. Go back to 1 Corinthians, and we'll see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll start with verse 16. <coughs> Alright, and Paul's... So he says, Do you not know that he who joins himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. So Paul is talking here about the seriousness of committing adultery because even if you make love, well, no, not make love, even if you fornicate with somebody who's not your wife, you're still one flesh. All right. So Paul is talking about the fact that when man and wife make love, they become one flesh. They are totally united in God's sight. Now, he then goes on in verse 17, but he who is united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And there you have it. Uh, go down into verse, um, verse 19. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? So there you have it, the fact that the Holy Spirit, having temporarily replaced an unbeliever's human spirit so he can be witnessed to and worked on effectively, he's brought to the point where he is free to decide for Christ. If he then does decide and believe on Jesus, the Holy Spirit then unites himself with that person's human spirit and his human spirit is brought back to life and he is therefore back in relationship with God and can receive from God quite unhindered because he now has an alive human spirit. And then in verse 12 Jesus goes on to say, he says, if I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, etc., and the earthly things is because Jesus has likened it to the Exodus, you know, the water of wind. Uh, verse, uh, verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now what Jesus is talking about here are what we call Old Testament Christophanies, alright, which is simply when Jesus in his pre-existence appears in the Old Testament. Like before Jesus was born as a baby, he had a body before then. And in the Old Testament Jesus was up and down all the time, like a yo-yo, all the time between heaven and earth. And this is what Jesus is saying. But now we come on to what it has all led up to, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up, and we saw this last time, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So, how do you get born again? And this is what it's all led up to, by believing on Jesus. So that as soon as someone has believed on Jesus as their saviour, they are born again and they are in relationship with God. Let's just see a few references. Go back into John 1 and I'll just show you three other verses which talk about being born again. John 1 and verse 12. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Now that word power is not dunamis, it's not dynamite like the Holy Spirit, it's exousia and it means the legal right, the power of eternity. So all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Go over to Paul's letter to Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and then you get Titus. And in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, 
he says this, He saved us, not because of deeds done by us in righteousness, but in virtue of his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, and that's regeneration being born again, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, go over to 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter, chapter 1, and verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the moment you believe in Jesus, your human spirit is brought back to life by the Holy Spirit. Now the result of that is that our last electric fence is now demolished. It's not there anymore. <coughs> the problem was that man had a dead spirit. Because of the death of Jesus on the cross, as soon as you believe in him, your spirit is brought back to life. You're born again. So therefore, the wall has gone. For you Pink Floyd fans, all in all, it was all just bricks in the wall. And they've all been knocked down, and the barrier has gone. The four electric fences are not there anymore. So what we come to is this, that from the time of the death of Jesus on the cross, sin no longer separates anyone from God. The only thing that separates anyone from God is because they do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's very quickly revise, go through again the four electric fences. The first one was the sin nature. We were in slavery to sin in the slave market of our sinful natures, no escape. We saw how, because of Jesus' death on the cross, he gave his life as a ransom. He potentially bought everyone out of the slavery, slave market of sin, and that applied to everyone. But when someone actually believes on Jesus and walks out of the sl slave market of sin, they are actually redeemed. So ransom everyone. Unbelievers as well have been ransomed. When you believe, you are then redeemed. So redemption and ransomed. Slavery to sin, no longer a problem. We looked at personal sins. We were seeing that because of God's righteousness, we had to have something done. You can't have fellowship with the Holy God if you have sins. And we saw that when Jesus died on the cross, he atoned for sin. And it was for everyone. Everyone's sins were covered, unbelievers as well, when Jesus died on the cross. So atonement applies to everyone. But we saw that not only that, but you have to have absolute righteousness as well. And we saw that when you believe on Jesus, you are imputed the righteousness of Jesus, and that happens when you believe. The third offence uh, was the penalty of sin. God's justice demanded that the penalty of sin had be paid, and we saw that Jesus paid the price, that the judgment was taken out on him, expiation, and it was for the whole world, unbelievers as well. And we saw that God's righteous demands had to be satisfied. Well, Jesus did it, propitiation, for the whole world. All right, that applies to everyone. And today we've seen Adam's sin, that we've got a dead spirit. But we've seen now that when we believe on Jesus, we get a new spirit, and it, well, not a new spirit, our human spirit is brought back to life. So the conclusion we reach from all this, 
the wall is demolished. It's not there anymore. The four impassable electric fences are gone. Turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near in the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. So the dividing wall of hostility, the four electric fences are gone. Now then, where those fences once stood, Jesus now stands there in its place. And Jesus stands there as the mediator between God and man. Alright, now turn to John 10, and we need to see in what way Jesus stands there instead of the wall. Alright, once there was a barrier there that you couldn't get through with four electric fences in it, now it's gone, Jesus stands where it once was. Now John 10 and verse 7 Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus stands there now, but not as an impassable wall, but as an open door. And all you do is believe in Jesus and walk through that door into salvation. Back to John 3 and just a few verses that follow the conversation with old Nicodemus John 3 verse 16 for God so loved the world he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him he who believes in him is not condemned but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So there you have it. The door is open. It's open for everyone. Sin does not separate people from God. All that separates them from God is Jesus standing there as a wide open door asking them to walk through. Now, let me end here with a nice little thing. And let's end with a question. What became of Nicodemus? And I'm now going to show you why it is I believe that when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night, that it wasn't because he was ashamed to be talking about Jesus. It's because something was happening in him and he couldn't wait. He had to get to Jesus now and it just happened to be late at night, but he couldn't put it off anymore. If you turn to John 19, and this is after Jesus has died, and in John 19, and we're going to read from verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. So he came and took away his body. And Nicodemus also, who had at first come to him by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. They took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now Jesus is dead, and Nicodemus is there looking after his body because he loved him. Nicodemus had gone and got himself born again. 
he was converted and will meet Nicodemus in heaven. And that's why I think it wasn't a question of him being ashamed of Jesus and going by at night. He couldn't wait to get there because the Holy Spirit was convicting him of his need of Jesus. And so through that talk with Jesus, Nicodemus went away and he thought about it and he prayed about it and he went and got himself saved because he fell in love with Jesus because he realised how wonderful Jesus was. Now next time we're going to put everything together that we've covered thus far and we're going to see what the Bible means when it says that we are justified by faith and we'll put it all together and it will fit together in one complete picture and you'll understand exactly what it is the death of Jesus has done for us. So we'll end it there.